As part of the original writing team on Saturday Night Live, Alan's Y. Bell has carved out a place in comedy history. In this episode of 92Y Talks, he sits down with Martin Short to discuss his hilarious career, which includes Billy Crystal's 700 Sundays, Short's Fame Becomes Me, and Curb Your Enthusiasm. The conversation was recorded on November 16th, 2015, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Well, 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 well. Well, here we are. Here we are. Let's start. There's so many subjects to cover, and that I also want to hear from you. <laughs> Saturday Night Live, how do you get Saturday Night Live? How did you get it? 1975, brand new show. It's, um, it's an amazing story. Hopefully you're all taking notes. Um, because originally it wasn't even my idea to become a comedy writer. This was a decision that was made for me about 40 years ago by every law school in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> I, I went to college in the late 60s, early 70s, um, did gr well with my grades, had to take the law boards. And if you remember, back then at least, they graded from 200 to 800. If you can write your name, you got a 200. If uh, you, Albert Einstein, you got an 800. If you were Alan Zweibel, you got a 390. <laughs> so I remember going home and telling my Long Island Jewish parents that I got a 390 on the law boards. And about a week later, this is after they uncovered the mirrors. <laughs> got up from those wooden stools they were sitting on. My father gave me $1,000, which I then took and gave to a man named Stanley Kaplan. For those of you who don't know who Stanley Kaplan is, he's a guy who's got these schools all over the country where they teach you how to take standardized tests. So I gave him $1,000 because I wanted to retake the law boards. And uh, for six months, I studied. I had the number two pencils. I had the earphones. I'm looking at old tests. And I retook the law boards. And uh, my score catapulted up to a 401. Wow. Yeah. You were so on fire. I, yeah, I was on fire. So I figured at that rate, I'd be around 90 before I got into yeah, an English-speaking really? law school. So I started writing jokes for stand-up comedians. But had you done it during law? I mean, was this something like a fantasy but seemed unrealistic? Oh, God, yes. I mean, from the minute I saw the old Dick Van Dyke show, I go, he was married to Mary Tyler Moore. Yeah. He had a really he nice house there. in New Rochelle. Yeah. He had a kid, and he spent his days at work lying on the couch, joking around with Buddy and Sally. Who wouldn't want to do that? Absolutely. But I didn't know how to go about it. But when I graduated college, since I couldn't go to law school, I started writing jokes for Catskill comedians. Um, I'm, I'm 21. These guys were 45 and 50 years old. So there wasn't a lot of uh, who, who common ground. Who was the, in. Uh, the first big name you started writing with? Morty Gunty. Morty Gunty, <laughs> really? How'd you get him? <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds like I'm name dropping, doesn't it? Yeah. No, uh, <laughs> $7 a joke. That was what they paid. $7 a joke? That was the going rate. And then they the own prime. it forever. They own it forever. Yeah, yeah it had road companies and, and whatever. And um, you want to hear a $7 joke? I do. First joke I got paid for, Morty Gunty calls me up and says, Al, I'm 21 now, right? He says, sperm banks are in the news. I said, gee, I, I must have missed the newspaper today. He said, can you write me sperm bank jokes? So the first joke I got $7 for was I wrote a joke saying uh, they have a new thing now called sperm banks, which is just like an ordinary bank, except here, after you make a deposit, you lose interest. <laughs> wow, hey, that's, $7. That's, that's 950 That's yeah, a good yeah. one. Yeah. And then my price went up to $10 as a result of that joke, yeah. the success of it. My highest I ever got was 18. I got high for a um, joke I wrote about a Hasidic orgy, which was, which was very unusual because the men were on one side of the room and the women were on the other. So there was like a feeding frenzy for that. First big guy that I, a big name I wrote for was Rodney Dangerfield. Rodney. That was so much easier than these. What was Rodney like? I never met, well, I did meet Rodney once, well, but briefly. Well, there were no secrets there. He was this big guy. He was really nice. Um, I, he had the thing, I don't get no respect. So it was really easy for him, you know, for me to write for him that even as an infant, I didn't get any respect. 
uh, my mother wouldn't breastfeed me. She said she liked me as a friend. Like, that was really <laughs> easy. <laughs> what was he like? My wife Robin is here. Our honeymoon. Robin, tell me, tell us if I'm lying. We get home from our honeymoon. It's two o'clock in the morning. We're dead to the world. We're going to bed. The phone rings at 2.30 in the morning. Alan, it's Rodney. I go, hey, what's doing? Alan, when, we got, when I was growing up, we were real poor. <laughs> really, how poor were you? We were so poor that come Christmas, we couldn't afford tinsel for the tree. We used to wait for my grandfather to sneeze. <laughs> no. I start laughing because it was a funny joke, and this situation was ridiculous. And he said, um, he said, funny joke? I went, yeah. He says, yeah, that's what I thought. He hung up. I didn't hear from him for two years, okay? So that was Rodney. So, um, so, so you wrote a lot of jokes for him. So when you first met Lauren Michaels, did I had submit these jokes? Yeah, well, what happened was I took all the jokes that these older guys wouldn't buy from me. I was working in a delicatessen and Queens, you name it, I sliced it for about two years, okay? And I'm writing jokes for these old guys. I'm living at home with my parents, going nowhere fast. So I took all the jokes they wouldn't buy from me and made it into a stand-up act for myself. There were two clubs in New York. This is 74, um, The Improvisation and Catch a Rising Star. And this was the new Catskills. This is where Richard Pryor and David Brenner and David Steinberg and Robert Klein and Lily Tomlin, Bette Midler, they were coming through there now. So the plan was to go this on... This is 1974. Yeah. yeah. plan was to go on stage, deliver the jokes, with the hopes that a manager or an agent would like my materials and get me, help get me a job as a TV writer. And the first week that I'm there, I meet another guy who's just starting out named Billy Crystal, our pal. And Billy lived three towns over from me on Long Island. And I'm living at home, and he would pick me up every night in his little blue Volkswagen. We'd go into the city, we'd tell our jokes, and he'd drive me home, and we'd listen to the tapes in the car, you know, and critique each other. Oh, God. And I'm about four months into this experiment of mine, and one night, it's about one o'clock in the morning, I'm having the hardest time in the world making these six drunks from Des Moines laugh. I go to the bar, and I'm just hanging my head, and I'm waiting for Billy to drive me home. A guy comes in, sits next to me, and just starts staring at me. And I go, what? He goes, you know, you're the worst comedian I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> so I thanked him. I said, I really need to hear this right now. It's good. Uh, he said, but I like your material. Uh, can I, I, did you write it? And I said, yeah. He said, can I see more of it? I went, you bet. I didn't even ask who this was. I, I, at this point, I would have shown it to like a gardener, okay? That was Lorne Michaels. Really? And he was going from club to club looking for... Finding a staff of writers. Staff for yeah. this new show that he was going to have called Saturday Night Live. So I went home, and uh, I typed up at my parents' kitchen table what I believed were 1,100 of my best jokes. <laughs> and this was a typewriter like this, you know, with you get the ink and the thing. This was a whole to-do, okay? And two days later... I had to um, go into the city for my interview with Lauren. So uh, I remember I was so nervous. I didn't know what to wear. I was thinking, okay, young, hip producer, young, hip show. All right, I'll dress young. I'll dress hip. I put on my father's maroon polyester leisure suit. <laughs> I looked like a big blood clot sitting on the Long Island Railroad. <laughs> I came into the city, and I went to the um, Plaza Hotel where Lorne was staying, and uh, there was a payphone there. It was 1975 now. There was no cell phones. I went to the payphone, and I called Billy Crystal, who at that point was talking to Lorne about the possibility of he, Billy, being on this new show. Well, it didn't work out, but they'd spent time together. They had dinners, and um, they spoke comedy. I said, listen, I'm about to have this meeting with Lorne. Uh, anything I should know to give me a leg up in this uh, interview. He said, well, he used to write for Woody Allen. He's produced some Monty Python specials. Oh, and he hates mimes. Lorne hates mimes. Okay? <laughs> I got it. Two o'clock, I go upstairs. I go into Lorne's uh, room, and he pulls up a chair, and I'm sitting on the bed, and I give him this tome of 1,100 jokes. And he opens the book, and he reads the first joke, and he goes, uh-huh, very good. And he closes the book. I'm up for two days typing 1,100 <laughs> jokes, 
And the joke was that stamp joke that Chevy did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Prostitution, 10 cent stamp, you want to lick it, it's a quarter. Okay? He goes, very good. Um, how much money do you need to live on? So I said, well, I'm making $2.75 an hour at the deli. <laughs> Match it. <laughs> so you were pretty savvy when it came well, to negotiation. Well, yeah, I mean, he said, well, tell me a little bit more about yourself, which I took to mean that before he committed to this kind of cash, he wanted to know what he was buying, you know? <laughs> so I said, well, Woody Allen's my idol. Love Monty Python. But if there's one fucking mime on this show, I am outie. Ah! You know? And I got a job. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I got to Saturday Tell night. me, uh, and then you're on the show, and then you meet Gilda Radner. Wait, and, wait. and you guys had a long, long collaboration. Yeah. Because the thing is about Alan, you know, Alan and I um, have, have done lots of writing together in our lives, and including Saturday Night Live. Right. And... Um, and Alan is this great, great person to write with a comedic uh, spirit, a clown, someone like Gilda or myself or a lot of people who can want to get up and act it out and, and honing and refining and then adding lines. And it's a great collaboration when you work with Alan. And I, I know, but explain... A, how you met Gilda, and how your process of creating character. Well, see, I can't do what you do. I can't do what Gilda did. I can't do, that's not the way I'm built. I don't have that talent. How I met Gilda, you know, it was the first day of SNL. It was July 7th, 1975, okay? And we had our first meeting, and it was the greatest day of my life. You know, my dad uh, manufactured jewelry. His place was on 52nd between Madison and 5th. And I used to run errands for him. And every time, no matter where the package had to go, I always went by way of the lobby of what was then called the RCA building because Johnny Carson was upstairs doing a Tonight Show. And in the early 60s, there was a show called That Was the Week That Was. Of and course. there were guys that were doing what That I, Was the Week That Was. Yeah, yeah. remember that show? Yeah, Nancy do. Ames and uh, David Frost. And a guy named Buck Henry was on it, okay? Right. And I wanted to do what they were doing. So now I'm reporting to work there. My first day as a comedy writer, and I go to Lauren's office where the writers and the actors were all meeting, and I'm looking around this room, and I see Belushi, and I see Chevy, and I see Aykroyd, and Senator Al Franken, yeah, right? Of course. And I'm going, these are the funniest people. This, this was a different kind of comedy. I was this Jewish gag writer. You're Jewish? It, <laughs> no, this is Nordic, okay? <laughs> I see, go ahead. <laughs> and... Um, and I'm going, I got just overwhelmed by what they were able to, were improving, they were doing stuff probably from Second City, stuff, new stuff they were making up in the moment. And I got so nervous that I wouldn't be able to compete with them or at least hold my own in this room that there was a, in Lauren's office, there was a potted plant in the corner of the room. I went behind the plant and I squatted down. Biggest day in my life, okay? Comedy writer, I'm squatting behind a plant, okay? And the meeting starts when all of a sudden, from the other side of the plant, I hear a girl's voice saying, can you help me be a parakeet? <laughs> so I parted the leaves. I look out, and it's Gilda. And I went, what? And she said, yeah, I think it'd be really funny if I scrunched up my face and stood on a perch and acted like a parakeet, but I need a writer to help me figure out what a parakeet would say. Yeah. Are you a good parakeet writer? I'm going, yeah, I'm a great parakeet writer. <laughs> and she said, good. She said, uh, how come you're hiding behind the plant? You nervous? I went, yeah, I'm a little nervous. She said, your first TV show, Alan? I went, yeah. How do you know my name's Alan? She said, you're the only one wearing a name tag. <laughs> <laughs> then she said, is there room behind the plant for another person? I went, what, what do you mean? She says, yeah, this is my first TV show, too, and I'm also nervous. So I scooched over. And there's Gilda next to me. So now we're both squatting behind the plant. And that's where I met our buddy Gilda. You know, we made each other laugh. And uh, she and I even had our first fight back there. She offered me gum. I said, sure, I'll take gum. And you, you remember, she used to have a, a, a pocketbook, like the size of my high school, okay? No, it was a big, yeah, purse. And purse with a thing with us. Lindbergh baby, everything. <laughs> the Lindbergh baby? I, I'm being current. <laughs> I'm being current. 
and she said, she put, <laughs> you're being current? Yeah. Yeah, no, you. I have a whole tour of college campuses yeah, coming up, so right. I'm trying out stuff. Yeah, why not snatch that name from the headlines? Yeah, the limper pig. <laughs> so she says, she indicates the pocketbook, and she says, take some. I go, it's in there? She said, yeah. I go, no, I, I can't do that. She said, you wanted gum? Just unzip it, and there's all sorts of gum inside. I said, I can't do that. She says, what's the matter? I said, because I'm a boy, and you're a girl, and there may be some things inside of that pocketbook that will eventually end up inside of you. And I'm a writer <laughs> with a very vivid imagination. Yeah. So yes, I do want some gum, but can you please serve it to me? She said, you're Jewish, aren't you? <laughs> I said, a little. She said, no, you're like a monster Jew. And we had this big tug of war with the pocketbook until Lauren called my name. So I Bell, where's Alan? I saw him here before. She says, he wants to hear your ideas for sketches. Do you have any? I said, yeah, but they stink, and I don't like talking in front of people. She says, don't worry, I'll take care of it. She steps out from behind the plant and addresses the room, and, uh, and she indicates me, and she says, so I Bell's got this great idea where I play a parakeet. She attributed her idea to me, and he's got lots and lots of ideas, and he's really funny, and I want, he and I are gonna be uh, writing partners and platonic friends forever. <laughs> she was setting the boundaries the, the, the platonic, yeah. But so when you would write characters like you would write um, Rosanna Dandadana or, or, or Emily Latilla, did these characters come from her? Did they come from you? Oh, did God. They, you know, did you help mold? How did that work? I helped mold them. I mean, Gilda, when she was growing up, had a nanny named Dibby, who I think took care of the kids when their mom got sick. And this nanny was hard of hearing. So Gilda said, I want to do a character just like that. I think Tom Davis was actually the one who came up with the name Emily Latella. And she would go on Weekend Update and do these rail on and on and on with these editorial replies. Uh, about editorials that she misheard. You know, such pressing issues as saving Soviet jewelry, okay? <laughs> okay, and making Puerto Rico a steak and yeah. violins on television, and um, <laughs> she would be corrected. No, 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 that's violence on television, not violins on television. She'd go, oh, that's quite different, and look at the camera and go, never mind. And yeah. we did that um, for a couple of years. I, we did presidential erections, and... Um, <laughs> I think the lowest we ever stooped was uh, endangered feces. I think that's, <laughs> that's when we pretty much shelved the character after that. Roseanne Rosanna Dana was a character that she had done once before, and I was producing the Weekend Update part of the show at this point, and we went out to dinner, and I said, remember that character you did? I said, why don't we move her into Weekend Update and, ha and give, have, have her do consumer reports, not unlike... Roseanne Scamordella, who was a local ABC newscaster at the time. And Gilda just said, um, can we name her Roseanne Rosanna Dana? I said, well, yeah, well, where'd you come up with that? Remember the, that song, the name game, Johnny, Johnny, Bobani, Banana, Banana? Somewhere like verse six, if you put Roseanne in there, Roseanne Rosanna Dana comes out. Why <laughs> she knew that off the top of her head, I don't know. And this thing, we, we started writing this. Richard Fader from Fort Lee, New Jersey, who I think is here, is my brother-in-law. And this thing just started snowballing. And last year, when there was Bridgegate, they wrote about him and Fort Lee, New Jersey, how he was affected by Bridgegate. <laughs> this is 40 years later. Yeah, yeah. No, but, um, you know, characters was something that I didn't do until I started writing for Rodney, but I saw it by characters. Let's talk about your characters, my God. Well, I, I mean, I think that, that what Gilda was doing, which is, makes sense, is that when you do these characters, they are based on real people. You know, they have to be. It gives them three dimensions, don't you think? Are yours? No, but I'm saying characters... <laughs> I'm saying characters that work. Oh. No, 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 even... Listen, Ed Grimley was based on a real guy. There was a guy I went to high school with. Uh, he wanted to be a photographer and his voice always went up like that. <laughs> and uh, I'd say, Sean, did you, uh, did you take any pictures this weekend? I took a lot of slides, <laughs> but I didn't develop them because I knew what they were. 
<laughs> so I didn't see the need. <laughs> you think, yeah, I'm going to remember that voice and someday make thousands of dollars. <laughs> well, well he, you know, Gilda was the one who first told me about you. Okay, she said the funniest guy in the world is this guy named Martin Short. And I, at that particular point, I don't think you were on TV, and I just took her word for it, and she kept on talking. And then when I saw you, and I saw Ed Grimley, <laughs> I went nuts. Now, let me ask you a question about your process. Because Ed Grimley, when he dances, he has an arm here, and this goes like this, right? <laughs> what was the first draft? What did he do before you came to this? It was very subtle, it was kind of... And then I decided up it. No, I don't know. I, it was a happy dance. It was a joyful dance. Ed was... I mean, I always... I always just drawn with characters to the initial idea of something. Like Nathan Thurm in that opening montage, there was a, a makeup artist on Saturday Night Live, Marion Siebert, and she was very defensive. And you would sit in her makeup chair, and she would chain smoke, because you could in 84... And she, I'd say, gee, Marianne, I look a little pale. I know that. You don't think I know that? I'm a makeup artist. I would know that. <laughs> Sorry. So then, uh, about a month later, Billy Crystal and Harry Shearer and Chris Guest and I were writing uh, the satire of 60 Minutes. And we wanted someone to be uh, the defensive lawyer who defends always the bad guy. And, and Billy said, why don't you play Marion Siebert? <laughs> You do her behind her back all the time anyway, you know. I said, well, she'll find out. Oh, she'll, they never find out, he said. And so I went down to the set, but I forgot, of course, that Marion would be there because she was the makeup artist. And so I'm playing Nathan Thurm, and I have my cigarette and my hair slicked, and Harry Shearer's playing Mike Wallace. He's cross-examining me, and at one point he says, Mr. Thurm, don't you feel that that was inappropriate as a, for a lawyer? I said, I know that. You don't think I know that? I'm a lawyer. I would know that. The director would say, he's sweating, cut. And Marion would say, I know that. You don't think I know that? I'm a makeup artist. <laughs> it was insane. And then, and then what got bad was that I, I kept doing it, and I kept thinking I'd get caught, and I never got caught. But in the last show, there was a party, and her assistant got drunk and told her that I was... <laughs> oh, God. How drunk a super humor in your name is there? <laughs> She was devastated, and she confronted me. She said, I thought you were my friend. I said, I am your friend, but for heaven's sakes, you know, impersonation is the highest form of compliment. And she said, I know that. You don't think I know that? <laughs> well, let's go back to you. Here's, what I, here's what's fascinating. So you work with Gilda. You work Gary Shandling. You, well, you, you, you did Larry David. Who's the biggest prick you've ever worked with? <laughs> Am I allowed to say Ryan O'Neill? Sure. Did you work with Ryan? Yeah, I did this very unfortunate show called Good Sports with he and oh, Farrah. Oh, with Fawcett. he and Farrah. Yeah, it was something that it lasted 12 episodes. And I forgot about It took about, about six years until I was back on solid food. <laughs> <laughs> it was horrible. Bernie talked to you in that, didn't he? Bernie talked, our manager, Bernie Brillstein, yeah. talked me into it. Hey, kid, you know, think Tracy Hepburn. I go, Tracy and Hepburn? Yeah. Yeah, when they had a fight, she didn't unload, you know, a six-pack into his car. <laughs> you know what I mean? She didn't shoot him out his tires and stuff. You know, He was aggressive. He was very, very aggressive. But, mm -hmm. I, you know, I've been really lucky. You know, the con look, when you write for comedians, they're a certain animal, and you let them be what they are, okay? Remember Henny Youngman? Henny Youngman, king of the one-liners, right? This is a long time ago now. He was walking down the street on 55th Street going towards the Friars Club. And I came out a door and I was behind him. There was no one else on the street. It was like a Saturday. It was a weird time. It was 55th between Madison and Park. And no one was on the street. So the important part of this story is he thought he was alone because he didn't see me back there. <laughs> and he's walking. Now he crosses the street thinking he's by himself, remember, when a pigeon flutters down. It lands at his foot, and without breaking stride, he looks at the pigeon and goes, any mail for me? <laughs> <laughs> he was talking to a bird. He didn't know I was there. You know, and you had Rodney calling me in the middle of the night. 
How did I meet Gary? Gary, what about Gary? Well, Gary, our manager, Bernie Brolstein, calls me, I think this is around 86, and he said, listen, do you know who Gary Shanling is? I said, yeah, I've seen him on TV, he's a funny guy. He says, they're doing a special for Showtime, they may need fresh eyes. They sent me the script, they flew me out there. I went straight from the airport to meet Gary at whatever restaurant. We had a nice dinner, and uh, we just said, okay, we'll keep in touch. I went back and checked into a hotel, and now I'm asleep. It's one o'clock in the morning, the phone rings, okay? <laughs> it's four o'clock in the morning for my body. You go, hello? Alan, it's Gary. <laughs> oh, hey, man, oh, what's up? Alan, my dog's penis tastes bitter. You think it's his diet or what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I called Robin, I said, I think I found the writing part, you know? <laughs> so, you know, when you write with other people... Did, did you have a deal with Fox, or did you just sell the show? We sold the show, originally with Showtime. Oh, Showtime. It was on Showtime, and nobody was watching it on Showtime, so we made a deal with Fox, and nobody watched it there either. I it, was, it was great. No, no, it was a big hit, though. No, it was a huge hit. Yeah. It, back then... Um, Cable shows were not eligible for Emmy Awards. They had something called the Ace Awards, and we won yes, tons of, of course. them. And we were the first cable uh, comedy show to be nominated for uh, Emmy Awards. It, it, it did very, very well. But, um, you know, when you write for a guy like that, or you write for any comedians, you just let them be, and uh, you, you follow them. You, you, you know, you don't impose yourself on them. I think that's why I'm able to collaborate with people. But that is a huge, huge part. And, and of course... Uh, 700 Sundays with Billy. Well, you know what happened? You won a Tony. That won a Tony Award, and it did very, very well. And, um, you know, what happened before we came to do 700 Sundays, the Shanling show is what brought, we moved to L.A. And that was um, a huge thing for our family, just the culture shock of moving to Los Angeles. Um, it was just so... For Gary, for Gary's show. For Gary's show, for Gary Shanley's show. I remember one night, Robin and I, and we had two children at the time, uh, only two, we have three now, but um, Adam and Lindsay were young kids, and we were eating at a restaurant on Westwood Boulevard called Mateo's. And Mateo's was an Italian restaurant, a lot of mafia guys eating there, okay? A lot of wise guys at the bar. And we're at a table, and Lindsay was about three years old at the time, and she was being naughty. She was kicking at him, she was hitting him, she was being belligerent. Lindsay, stop. Lindsay, stop. Lindsay, if you do that one more time, you're gonna have to leave the table. So she did it one more time. She left the table. Leave the table. You don't come back until you're ready to behave. <laughs> about a minute later, we're eating, and I hear what sounds like a very familiar voice saying, this girl says you're giving her a hard time. <laughs> I look up, it's Frank Sinatra. Are you serious? I don't know him. I'm going, excuse me, Mr. Sinatra, listen to my side of the story, okay? <laughs> and yeah. I told her how she was behaving, and then he basically said, is your dad right? Yes, he said, and he basically uh, disciplined her. And, um, <laughs> Wait, that was L.A. Did he shoot her? Or? Yeah. <laughs> he shot her. To, to this day, there's a market limit. To hell yeah. with you, <laughs> baby. <laughs> and then for 700 Sundays, we moved back here. Um, uh, you know, we were rehearsing uh, for the show. Uh, I was just honored that Billy asked me to do it. He was my good friend for, for many years. He, Larry, David, and I shared offices at Castle Rock at Rob Reiner's company. And um, we never worked together. And he asked me if I would, uh, in 1997, if I wanted to write a, a play with him about his dad and his family called 700 Sundays. You started, on the, you started on that early? No, because I said, yeah, I'd love to do it. And he didn't get back to me for about five years. <laughs> and we saw him all, I saw him all the time. He would come, he's Uncle Billy to the kids. He'd come over for seders, but he never said another word and I didn't want to impose. And then after his mom passed, uh, at the funeral, he came up to me and says, okay, I think I'm ready. And that's when we got started working. So it was about five years later. Yeah, and then that one at Tony, that, then you did it again? Then we did it again. And that was a very, very interesting uh, writing gig for me because, um, you know, I never met any of the people 
in his family that he was talking about. You know, by the time I came around, they were all dead. Right. But um, it wasn't hard for me to capture the voices of a Long Island Jewish family. Yeah. <laughs> this wasn't exactly like, you know, alien to me. So for me to write a joke for Billy saying, you know, that they mostly uh, spoke Yiddish, which is a combination of German and phlegm, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't need to know these. No, I just had to no. listen to my own yeah. grandparents, you know. And then, but, and then you work with Rob on North. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and North. <laughs> yeah. Well, why do you go, yeah, yeah, yeah? Because it's, <laughs> North what? was a. Uh, it didn't open the way you'd hoped. <laughs> <laughs> you say that like, you said it like it eventually opened, okay? <laughs> I wrote a book called North and, um, our son Adam was about uh, oh about eight years old at this point, and he was at that age where he'd sit at dinner with me and Robin, and just from the look on his face, you knew he was thinking, yeah, I could do better than these two, you know. <laughs> so I wrote a book about a little boy named North, um, who was nine years old, didn't feel appreciated by his parents, declared himself a free agent, and went all over the world, offering his services as a son to the highest bidding set of parents. Okay. The book did terribly. Um, I sent it to Rob Reiner to give me a, a, a blurb for it. And he said, I'd love to make a movie out of this. And he, would, he just did When Harry Met Sally, A Few Good Men, Spinal Tap. And it's the biggest thing, wow, a writer can experience. You, um, you write a book and now you're hired to adapt it into a movie. So I did that. And the next thing I know, there's this $50 million movie Elijah Wood, Bruce Willis, Jason Alexander, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, our friend Dan Aykroyd, star-studded thing, and there was a big Hollywood premiere, the biggest day of my life. It's great. Flew my parents out from uh, Florida. I don't know if you know this, there's a lot of Jews in Florida. So I read I flew this, them. I I read this the, coming in. And it, it was, uh, <laughs> on your way in, you read this. <laughs> oh, that's right, we were together this afternoon, you didn't know this. The, um, no. And I, um, it was the best night of my life until the next day when the reviews came out. What? <laughs> well, for those of you <laughs> who don't remember Roger Ebert's review of North or carry it with you in your wallets, <laughs> this is what he thought of my moving. I hated this movie. <laughs> hated, 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 hated this movie. Hated it. Hated every simpering, stupid, vacant, audience-insulting moment of it. Hated the sensibility that thought anyone would like it. Hated the implied insult to the audience by its belief that anyone would actually be entertained by it. Oh, now... Now, okay. On the surface, yeah, it seems <laughs> this may seem like an unfavorable review, but if you look at it closer, I think yeah. he kind of liked it. Yeah, yeah, I think he wants. Yeah, no, but no. Here's an interesting question about reviews. Now, why would you carry that in your wallet? I mean, what 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 is it? Because, as we know, certain films can grow, you know, with audience appreciation. Yeah. North didn't, but others <laughs> certainly... <laughs> but really, why, like, do you read reviews? Do you read, do you... Not anymore. But I think at the, begin at the beginning, I did. It's and just, it's so extreme, you it had was to It was incredibly, so yeah. humiliating. It was off the charts humiliating. Look, we lived in L.A. at the time, you know... My son Adam was uh, 11 years old. He had a fight with Mike Ovitz's kid on the playground of the school they went to. Wow. You're fat. No, you're fat. You're a bad athlete. No, you're a bad athlete. Then, then Chris Ovitz says to him, well, your father did North, and that did nothing at the box office. <laughs> so at dinner, we said, Adam, um, how, what did you answer? He said, well, at least people like my father, which was... Um, <laughs> We knew that's he was going to be okay. Oh, my God. That's great. But, but it was humiliating. The kids came home from school, wanted to change their last name to Sorkin, you know? <laughs> Did you ever have any humiliating experiences? Oh, I show you real. It's frightening. <laughs> no, listen. I mean, I think that it's always 
uh, daunting to, to, you put yourself out there, and you're, especially but as a writer. I want to talk a little bit, because we're running a little short on time, we're going to take some questions. I want to talk about books. I want to talk about these books we're doing, that you have written how many books? I have eight. Eight books. Yeah. And, 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 and is it more enjoyable than doing something? I mean, if you go from a sketch with Gilda to, uh, you know, a, a, a musical with me, a play with Billy, uh, or a movie uh, that, you know, Roger hated. Uh, <laughs> no, and other, you've made other great films. Well, truthfully, what, what and, and then now these books, and a Thurber Prize winner. What, what is your favorite moment? It's lonely to write a book. It's really yourself. lonely to write a book, and you're doing it all by yourself in a room, and it's a cliche to say you sit down there and stare at a blank page. What I do like about it is it's so internal uh, that you can take three pages to describe what somebody's thinking, you know, and which, you, which would be like death, which would right. be like North if it was on a film, <laughs> you know. Um, I'm seeing North tonight, okay. and I bet you're excited. No, we're going to show it. Yeah. Roll North, okay? <laughs> Who wants to see <laughs> North? <laughs> but... You know, I've loved writing the books, but also it, it is so lonely. And being a, um, somebody who came from live TV, where it's so collaborative, you know, and the synergy, right. that's why I wrote Lunatics with Dave Barry, and that's why I wrote this most recent book, which is a, a book for middle-grade kids called Benjamin Franklin, Huge Blank, uh, Pain in My Blank, with Adam Mansbach, who's here somewhere. Can Adam? Adam, are you here? There's Adam. There he is. Okay. Hey, Adam. I, I wrote it with Adam. Adam wrote a great book a, a few years ago you may have heard of called uh, Go to Fuck to Sleep, okay? <laughs> That's a, a, a book that Adam wrote. You do know it, okay? And um, Adam and Dave Barry and I just sold a, a book last week, um, which <laughs> it's a parody of the Haggadah. <laughs> and um, it's coming to a Seder near you in 2017. I'm Catholic, so I don't know what you're talking about. I understand. Well, I, I, I'm a Hollywood Catholic. I'm looking for a God type. You know? <laughs> okay. But what... What, <laughs> what is... <laughs> what is... The Haggadah is the book that you read uh, uh, at the service of the, of the Seder. And it it's, tells you the story of the Exodus, and it tells you uh, it's a participatory thing. Everybody reads a section. The four questions are in there. Do you ever hear of the four questions? Sure. Sure. But, uh, <laughs> speaking of questions, we, let's take some questions. Wow, that was beautiful. Wasn't that good? Oh, wow. Because we really, uh, we want to take some questions from this beautiful audience. All in Spanx, I see. <laughs> Who has a question? Right there. Celebrity autobiography. Celebrity autobiography. I'm going to repeat the question. I was told to repeat the question. Oh, okay. That I yeah. I'm sorry that I said Although this that. woman has Ethel Merman's lungs. Yeah. So. <laughs> I saw you. <laughs> yes. I got How did you get involved with a celebrity autobiography? <laughs> da, 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 da. Why did I do it? <laughs> <laughs> He's got big pipes. Wow. <laughs> Celebrity autobiography, for those of you who have not seen it, it's something that's done at the Triad Theater once a month on 72nd Street, and you have uh, people come up, like myself. Did you ever do it? I did. Marty's done it. Um, Matthew Broderick does it. Brooke Shields does it. People, and you get on stage, and group. you literally read celebrities' autobiographies, okay? And it's real funny how indulgent these celebrities are. And um, <laughs> we get up there and we do that, and I think the next one is November 23rd, a week are from you, tonight. Are you bastards gonna read from my book? We might have to. Uh, <laughs> you other bastards. questions? Yes. Who were your contemporaries at the improv when you got started? Larry David, Billy Crystal, Elaine Boozler. Uh, David Brenner was already out, but he would come back and try out new material for The uh, Tonight Show when he would do it. Uh, same thing with Robert Klein, was a little bit out. Jimmy Walker was a contemporary. Gabe Kaplan. 
Wow. So it was those people, yeah. Anything else? Yes, right there. You want to run the clip? You want to do the clip? Okay, let's, we'll show a little Jiminy clip. Let's show a Jiminy clip. Well, it's better than asking Alan. Why are we doing this? Well, Albert, why not? Jiminy click? Clip? <laughs> now we go out and about with Jiminy Glick. Hello, I'm sitting with my super, <laughs> super special guest, the wonderful Jerry Seinfeld. I just want to say I'm a huge fan of yours. Oh, well, thank I've you. I've always been a fan. I've watched oh. your show for years. Who don't you like in show? Who, who are you fed up with? I, I don't really have anybody. Delta Burke? I'm a little tired of her. Yes. I knew it! I really should be a clairvoyant. I've never seen a shirt collar actually go <laughs> up like that. I don't mean to get personal, but there's only two buttons of your shirt visible before the shirt goes into the pants. I feel like I'm with Hollywood royalty, and you are so calm with it. But Good. I've hardly talked about my movie. Oh, yes. What were you here promoting? Oh, actually, it was a website. What's the website, Steve Martin? What, where, how can we find what your latest thing is? Uh, just adultdiapers.com. Now, I don't want to be indiscreet, mm -hmm. but can you actually do a stinky and then go out publicly? In the adult diapers, you mean? I never asked, really. I, I, so you it's probably on the label somewhere. Why did you think people are wearing adult diapers? To give them bulk at that age? I think they've got it. No, I think it's just a convenience. convenience. Sometimes you can't find a restroom. You might be on a date, and why pull over? But that's where the, the question mark around the word stinky. Uh -huh. Can you do a stinky in them? Because if you can't, <laughs> what's the point of them? Because anyone can just pee their pants. I did it five minutes ago. Never felt better, never felt freer. But to do a stinky while talking to a big after kind of considered actor through the years, wouldn't that be a mistake? And wouldn't I feel liberated by wearing an adult diaper? Adult diapers to be free to do a stinky. <laughs> oh, Jiminy. <laughs> and every time you're on the screen, you, you amaze us. I saw you in that film, Rescue Me. What was it called, Rescue Me? I'm alone in the sand. Do something about it. What's it called? Oh, uh, uh, Castaway. Castaway, that's it. And, and that must get very lonely doing that film. Uh, I've, I've always thought that... Want one? No, thank you. I'm... It was a hard movie to make. Because why? Because you were just me. Just I just you. loaded a camera, measured off the focus marks. And I assembled a little editing machine out of coconuts and bamboo and <laughs> run the film through there. Listen, I had seen every episode of Gilligan's Island, so I was prepared. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't look at that. I can't, I can't look at that. I'm not going to look at that. Look down there. My dog threw up in my car just like three days ago, and I, I, I dealt with it the same well, way. Well, you're going to be queasy. you're going to be absolutely fine if you feel queasy. Oh my dear God! You will want some of these then. No. Any donuts? No, I'll have some of these. No, no, don't, no, don't no, no, leave those. Don't mind that? Let's yeah. talk about you and. Questions over here. Right there. Uh, Marty, I saw you and Steve Martin performing about a month or two ago, and David Letterman came out. To yes. You guys. How did that come about, and can we get an update on if he's still alive? Or <laughs> <laughs> he's great. No, it was. Uh... It was amazing because Steve uh, had mentioned it to Dave, and I kept saying, uh, "Oh, don't bring it up to him. He'll he'll feel he has to do it because we've done his show for thirty years." And uh, <laughs> but he wanted to do it. He was excited. He he, you know, he he was filled with you know, um, kind of apprehension, not convinced. He'd, uh, but he he did say, you know, but I am so excited to be in front of an audience again. And he was just as loose. But it was hilarious because. 
they, the audience didn't know that it was, he was coming. And because he had a beard, when we said David Letterman, it came out and they kind of laughed thinking, who is this? And then they realized it was Dave Letterman. They went nuts. It was exciting. Yeah. Now he's doing great. He's fantastic. We love him and miss him. Yes. No, 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 you're not making this a hard question at all for me to ask. I feel like when the, it's not funny, you can usually attribute it to the lack of the, the, the writing is what's, uh, you can attribute to the writing, it, the, or the lack of good writing. You, you know what I mean? Like, people don't realize how much, if the writing's not there, you can't say it. So the question is... is. So it's a compliment. Yeah. I think it is true that, that, that it's, you know, second, no, but no, Saturday Night Live is very much like Second City in Chicago and Toronto. And, and it is this vehicle. And it's this amazing vehicle. And obviously, if you have the most genius writers in the world and the most genius cast, the quality will be um, different than if, if you didn't. But... The, what's wonderful about it is that it's always there, and that's why you've had these, these, um, like when when, when when SNL first ended, you know, the first five years, you thought, well, that's it. They'll never top themselves. But, you know, then you had Jan Hooks, and then you had Dana Carvey, and then you had Tina Fey, and then just went on, me. And, uh, <laughs> but really, you just went on and on and on. And I, wouldn't you say that it's just... I would say that uh, it's had the luxury and the curse of getting undressed, reconstituting itself in front of millions of people every week. And when you think that it's in a slump and maybe you should pull the plug on it, you know, um, Adam Sandler comes along, you know, uh, uh, Andy Samberg, you know, Marty Short. Um, <laughs> people come along and, and, and all of a sudden it lifts it, you know. And as far as the writing is concerned, yeah, the writing is important and the marriage of the writing and the acting. I actually think in many, and I do watch this show, just the same way I want, it's my alma mater, you know, I root for my old high school football team to win, you know, and I'm not playing there anymore. But um, I think that in some ways the writers now have it harder than we did it, because when we did it, you're only, the television, think about what television was, it, the universe was ABC, NBC, CBS, it, was, it wasn't even Fox, there was no cable. That was television, those three networks. And in order to get things past the censors, we had to use a little bit, uh, degree of cunning, you know? I mean, I can tell you, there was a guy on the show named Michael O'Donoghue when I was there, and he was founded the National Lampoon, and uh, he was a brilliant guy, and I was producing the Weekend Update segment of the show at the time, and he called me up and he said, can we have Weekend Update brought to you by a product? that we make up. And I said, yeah, let's go for it. So O'Donoghue has Don Pardo say, and now Weekend Update brought to you by Pussy Whip. <laughs> <laughs> the dessert topping for cats, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, it worked great. And it worked so great that I wanted to do one. So the next week for the 7.30 dress rehearsal, okay? I had Don Pardo say, and now Weekend Update brought to you by Blue Balls. <laughs> B-L-E-U, Blue Balls. <laughs> the cheese snack from France, okay? <laughs> and it worked great, and he wanted to put it on TV. I don't know if she was there when you were there, but there was a censor named Jane Crowley. Big 300-pound woman, ex-nun, dress shields. You know who I'm talking about. <laughs> and she would sit in the control room looking at the script during the dress rehearsal, and this was her last chance at actually censoring us because then you go on the air live and it's just out there. And 
Blue Balls gets a big laugh, and I go, okay, we're going to put it on TV. The door to the control room opens. She comes waddling out. <laughs> she finds me. She says, Alan, we can't do this when we go on TV. I said, why? What are you talking about? She says, you can't say Blue Balls. And I go, why? And she says, because it has to do with the male genitalia. And I say, Jane, last week, you let us say pussy whip, which is clearly the female genitalia. But now this week, what kind of sexist organization are you running here? And she said, give me a minute. She goes to the control room, picks up the phone, calls God, I guess, <laughs> comes out, finds me. She says, Alan, we discussed it. And I've come to the conclusion that because I gave you pussy whip last week, <laughs> blue balls. I'd be more than happy to give you blue balls this, this week. week. And I said, you know, that's not necessary. Just let us say it on television. <laughs> we'll call it even. All right, one last question. Right here. Every week. Every week. Yeah, yeah. Every, every no, week. No, I used to like think that. the most amazing thing about Saturday Live is the schizophrenia of it. That, that you could get through this, you know, the Saturday Night Live show and you felt, if it went well, you went, felt great. And then you went to the party, which was hip, and you might, there's Warren Beatty, and you meet Warren. Marty, say hello to Warren Beatty. <laughs> and. <laughs> And, and Was you, Catherine Hepburn ever at any... She said, my goodness, you are good night. <laughs> <laughs> but then, then, and Sunday you get up and you maybe hit a hip lunch at the Odeon and you take compliments, thank you. But by Sunday night, you're getting that thing in your stomach. Mm, not an idea. And then Monday morning you meet, you know, hello, I'm Ringo, and you're faking an idea. <laughs> And then by Monday night, it's 48 hours later, and you feel like the biggest failure in the world because you don't have anything because the read-throughs on Wednesday. Very, very tough show to do. All right, is that? Have we done it, Alan? I, I think. Have we done it? Is there anybody who's like dying to ask? <laughs> it's 9:19. It seems like very good. Alan's right now. Party shot. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations on 92yondemand.org.